0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the This Is Not Some Superpower Chessboard edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. I am not standing on a superpower chessboard right now. I'm here in our Washington D.C. studio with my good friends Ben Wittes. Hi, Ben. Hey, Ben. You're looking very sporting today. You're sporting some new accoutrement. Uh, I am. Yeah, on your head. Oh, oh, oh! <laughs> I'm wearing glasses. <laughs> you don't wear glasses.
2: Uh, yeah, I do. You do now. Yeah, he I'm does aging
0: now. You do
1: now.
2: Wow. I'm aging.
0: They look very smart on you.
1: Thank you. They look very sharp.
0: Do you, you mean they make him look smart?
1: Uh well he he already looks pretty smart but maybe they make you look smarter mm. are you afraid they make him look dorky no.
0: mark off him with I, I
1: already look dorky <laughs> I
0: love his dorkiness his dorkiness is part of his charm oh you have very stylish glasses though
1: thank you yours I are try. stylish but like maybe we could do like some colored rims or
0: something
2: I don't know I'm 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 this is just the intro. Yeah. You okay. know, maybe, maybe I'll wear giant got a
0: toe in the water. We'll yeah. see what comes next.
1: I think so. Well, welcome. I mean, I, I thought maybe you just wore contacts and today you were wearing glasses. No, nope. You're you graduating onto eyewear. Okay. Well, uh, they look good, Ben. Uh, so this week on the show, we're going to not talk about actually Ben's eyewear too much more, but um, we're going to first talk about uh, who is not going to be our next Commander-in-Chief. The word just came down from Jolt the Rose Garden. Jolton Joe is not going to run for president. So what are the national security implications of that decision, Ben? Uh,
2: can I can't run? think of any. <laughs> um, I, I, since I think if he had run, he very likely wouldn't have won. Um I can't think that the marginal, of the marginal national security implication of Maybe Tammy can, though.
0: Well, I guess we can assume that the presidential campaign will now not include a debate over the potential division of Iraq. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. We're going to miss that part of the debate. Yeah, and, uh, and it'll be interesting to see now, um, since there won't be a Biden v. Hillary on Libya Mm -hmm. what the republicans decide to do with libya in the campaign right Right.
1: do you guys think he was right do you think i mean do you think let me put it this way do you think he was right that the window had closed on his opportunity to run this campaign which is what he said or would he just not have won i think if he uh had wanted to run
2: it's this kind of thing you're either all in for or you're not doing Mm -hmm. and he, you know, if you're dithering about a decision this long, even for very good reasons like he has, you're not all in. And I think that means you're not going to run seriously even if you say you're going to run. Right. And so I don't think think so much that the time window had closed for an energetic campaign. I think the energy window had closed on Biden and mm-hmm. he's, his heart just wasn't in it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure what it means to say the window's closed. I think what it means is I decided not to do it. I think that's right. <laughs> I think that's right. And,
1: you know, I said this I've said this publicly, too. I think the one thing you can take away from this that is good and that nothing changes is I really do think that his public grieving was actually an act of public service. And I think that he talked very openly about dealing with death and the death of children, and it was graceful and it was dignified, and I think everybody can learn something from it. Yeah. So in a sense, if that's his last kind of public act, Good on you. Yep. You know, he handled it really, really well. He's an
0: admirable man. He
1: is. Uh, okay, so this week, for real on the show, uh, the European Court of Justice may have just knocked the surveillance state back on its heels. Is Russia a resurgent power in the Middle East? And one think tank fellow slash podcaster has a bone to pick with Vladimir Putin. who, could who
2: that be? could be. I yeah, no, hmm. probably got some
1: great glasses, though. Um, let's start with the first wordplay. I'm going to go first. Um this is actually a, a European Court of Justice decision that was handed down two weeks ago, right? But we haven't talked about it yet on the podcast. Uh it seems like a lot of people are still absorbing. Yeah, wait,
0: we take in two weeks just to figure out what that <laughs> what
1: hell? the hell it said. Uh, but the long and short of this, and you both kind of correct me if I if I if I get any of the, the key facts wrong, but there is something called the Safe Harbor Agreement that essentially allows American companies like Facebook and Google who have customers in European countries, to have the data transmitted transatlantically under the, the the assumption that they will afford to those European citizens' data the same level of protection that they would enjoy in their own country, along comes Edward Snowden, demonstrates to the world that uh, that may not necessarily be true that European countries are afforded the same kinds of privacy rights that the American citizens that they might. And a 27-year-old was he a graduate student? Something like that, yeah. Austrian essentially sues and says that based on Edward Snowden's leaks and based on the articles that were published about NSA surveillance, uh, uh, the Americans cannot possibly guarantee that the data of European citizens is being respected as it would be in their country. And ultimately, the European Court of Justice says, yep, the Safe Harbor Agreement is BS. And now the gate is open for individual European countries to file suit against companies like Facebook, like Google, over the handling um, of their citizens' data. I think I pretty much cut that right. Um, to me, this just seems crazy, right? I mean, this is like, I mean, putting aside for just a moment, and I don't mean crazy in the decision, the process here is baffling to me, Um You know, maybe I'm just used to Americans trying to bring claims in U.S. courts and being told you don't have standing based on newspaper articles, which you know is a is a as a point of you know of the law I can understand. I may not like the outcome, but I get that. I do not understand how this went in. It seems like a fairly short order to this ultimate court in Europe issuing a decision that can completely upend now an agreement that had been hammered out or was being hammered out by several countries through. These various processes. And, you know, it seems like it could have tremendous implications for uh, surveillance and, and the capabilities and the way that the NSA gathers information, which maybe is a great thing. I'm not saying it is or it isn't. I'm not in position. I'm just totally, my head is spinning as to how in the world this happened.
2: Well, so number one, um, I think you're understating the craziness of it. So <laughs> let's—is kangaroo <laughs> court
0: too strong? Currently? No, it's all like after, la- 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 no, these Maria. are the philosopher kings of the European Union, not a kangaroo court. It, yeah,
2: if you if you leave aside the the name calling, which I don't tempt me because, um, <laughs> but I mean, just start with the fact that this is an Austrian national suing an uh, 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 Irish subsidiary of an American company in an international European court uh, in which, uh, sorry, the defendant is actually the Irish Data Protection Authority. Um, and the body of evidence in question, it's not just that the standing is established based on newspaper articles. Right. The sum total of everything they know about U.S. programs is based on sort of just stuff that they've taken judicial notice of. Um, And the results of it are really huge, because it's not just about um, companies like Facebook and Google that have large amounts of company customer data. Um, It's also about any company that may have large amounts of employee data Mm -hmm. that they can't now uh, consider transiting to the United States. Like payroll data.
1: Like if you're a company right. with an office in South Carolina right. and in Germany.
2: Personally identifiable information right. like is generally Labor subject system. to the European Data Directive.
1: Right. And so,
2: you know, the, the Safe Harbor Agreement is one of the things that makes the data economy possible because uh, it allows European companies to you know, move data into the United States, which, dirty little secret, is where the data innovation stuff happens. And so it's a very uh, disruptive uh, expression of the values divide between Europe and the United States over the handling of data. And here's the rub. The one thing really wrong in your account of uh, the European, the ECJ opinion, is the buying of the assumption that there are there's greater protection uh for it, you know against uh this sort of spying if you leave data in Europe you know well, the go- european governments have extremely strong authority to compel companies to provide data in many cases much stronger than the united states has and they have uh, fewer restraints uh legal restraints than the united states has and so the whole thing is kind of based on this fiction that nsa is sort of uniquely uh has uniquely robust legal authorities relative to european country nationals data
0: you know i have to say that seems one false premise um if you're correct ben but it seems to me too that this is just sort of a a 20th century legal ruling in a 21st century world. Uh I'm not actually sure, you know, if it's possible to draw lines so neatly and say that data can exist here and it may not exist there and there are ways to ensure that it won't. Um, Our global economy is such the nature of global commerce, multinational corporations it, it's almost impossible to imagine that, um, that these large companies can do business in a meaningful way uh-huh. without data leaking across national borders in ways that would violate the terms of this ruling. And so it seems to me that in practice, this is impossible to implement and impossible to enforce. And so I wonder whether, you know, it's a nice statement of that values gap, which I agree is real. It's also a good indicator of Misperceptions um, about American policy and American surveillance relative to European, and just the way you were saying, Ben. But other than that, it might not have much practical effect. And it seems like there's just like a profound naivete in this, right? I mean, that
1: that just as you said, I mean, okay, you know, you're just maybe this this ruling is describing a world that just doesn't operate in the way that the ruling presumes that it does, right? You know, and and, and Ben, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I mean, essentially there were. There were two sort of opinions. There was this kind of preliminary advisory opinion, right, that was. By a kind of special master. Right, that court. was sort of more affirmatively coming out and saying, based on the material Edward Snowden has leaked, therefore we conclude that the United States could never possibly protect data the way it's protected in Europe. But the final ECJ ruling took a much narrower, sort of more, I guess, legalistic, if I could say that, kind of ruling, and didn't seem to, like, sort of reach affirmatively. And I I just wondered if maybe the ECJ looked at it and was like, yeah, we'll write an opinion, but we're not going to be quite so strident and reliant on newspaper accounts um, to form, you know, our legal opinion.
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, I... I, So first of all, on on Tamara's point, I think... That the opinion will have enormous practical implications, and the practical implications are that a whole bunch of European data, commis- data privacy commissioners, data protection authorities, are now empowered to, uh, you know, regulate transfers to the United States of data that they that used to be covered by a European-wide agreement and used to be beyond their sky. So now, you know, each country is you know, since some of these countries will try to do things. Um, Which sounds like
1: like if individual states decided which federal laws they were going to enforce.
2: Yeah, I mean, European federalism and American federalism are very different, but Europe does have this Europe-wide data data policy that, you know, the United States doesn't have. So, I mean, I I assume there will be significant practical consequences, and the most important of them is that, um, you know, maybe that you know, there are European countries that it stops being valuable for U.S. companies to do business in, particularly small ones with, you know, very aggressive data protection uh, commissioners. And I think, you know, there just might be a point at which Europe and the United States kind of reach a parting of the ways on data, and we kind of go our way, and Europe kind of goes their way. But what are the
0: economic consequences of that? They're
2: huge. Um, And... Look, Germany passed the data localization law you know this same week. Um, and you know Europe has this idea, you know that if we did this to them, they would regard it as the height of imperialism. But they really have this idea that they can regulate how data is handled in the United States and using terms using access to Europe as a term of access, as, as as a sort of lever. And I think eventually the United States is going to take the position, you know, to heck with it. We don't, you know, we're not going to give up our intelligence programs as a way of ensuring that we have sort of access to your data market.
1: And and, and the intelligence and national security implications of this would be, it seems to me, you know, if, if these companies decide to start localizing all of the data, so if Facebook decides to put all of its German customers' information in Germany, and that's what's required the NSA is going to spend a lot more time forcibly breaking into
0: German data data banks in other countries
1: or you know and I can also see um, you know companies deciding and as a way of maybe preemptively kind of appeasing national authorities uh, encrypting all of their data in motion and at rest Mm -hmm. and just saying look we're gonna go ahead and make it super difficult for anyone to capture and decrypt this information the economic consequences of that may be you know perhaps hard to tell, but uh, it, it yeah just it, it's it, 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 from the national security officials' immediate reaction to this seems to be um, oh shit, this might be a problem
0: well i I mean I also it just seems to me that in practice and over time it is impossible for governments to say that certain types of information can't cross state borders. <laughs> I just um, I, I don't know, as a practical matter, how you hold that line.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Um, and, and so it, you may be right, Ben, that companies are going to have to respond to this and, and governments respond to it, and we'll see some behavioral change, but I, I just don't think it's a line that can hold.
1: Why don't we hear from our first non-sponsor this week? Well, Shane, our first
2: non-sponsor this week uh, is Stamps.com. And Stamps.com, we're we're delighted to have them as a non-sponsor because we really wanted to share with you how much we enjoy standing in line at the post office. You know,
0: there are very few experiences left in our modern free market society where so many things are privatized, where you actually have that experience as citizen peers. We're all equal. We're all standing in line facing the same surly clerks. Right getting the same crappy service The same crappy service, and, and, and it's a I'm, shared friends experience that way you, you really do know it. it's a bond in the community it's a common bond of citizenship and we don't want to lose that
2: so don't use stamps.com because you know that um then you could do everything from your desk and become even more of an atomized being say no to stamps.com um it's yeah.
0: it's like that grubhub ad that says that you can get Restaurant food without actually interacting with humans. Why would you want to do that? Yeah. Go stand in line yeah, don't, at the don't, don't buy
1: from Grubhub either. They don't, <laughs> they don't sponsor us either. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go mail a bunch of letters after we're done with this. You're going to go to the post office? Of
2: course I am yeah.
1: so yeah. I can stay in the post office. And it's great because it's a big concrete building on M Street. And when I go in, I get no cell phone reception. So right. I'm actually forced to stand there and talk to the people next to me in line who never seem as eager to be there as I am, but I think I'm breaking through. Yeah, good, good,
0: good, good. <laughs> good, good. Thank
1: you, Stamps.com. Our Thank you. Uh, okay, Tamara, your wordplay is up next. Is Russia a resurgent power in the Middle East? Well, da or not?
0: Da or yet Well, this is the question posed by... Um, one of my favorite uh, national security columnists, David Ignatius. And one of the reasons I love reading David's column is um, because he does a lot of reporting and because he has um, a lot of history and a lot of um, cont- context to add to the things going on in the world. So this column is um, largely about the figure of Yevgeny Primakov, former prime minister, former intelligence chief, uh, in Russia, but um, but mainly in my world known as Russia's premier Arabist and Middle East policy expert and advisor over many, many decades. And uh, Ignatius points out that one of the consequences or at least potential consequences of this Russian intervention in Syria, the military intervention, is um, a reopening of a question that you know, we international relations folks thought had been settled back in the 1970s, which is, uh, whether Russia can find a role for itself in the modern Middle East and, uh, and forge a lasting influence over the future shape of this region. You know, from the time that, um, President Sadat of Egypt kicked out Soviet military advisors in 1971, and then when, uh, when President Carter brokered the Egypt-Israeli peace agreement, that basically marginalized the Soviet Union uh, and Soviet influence in the Middle East, and Russia basically deferred to the United States from that point on on Middle East policy, and the U.S. took on this role as security guarantor and power broker in the region. And the question is whether Putin is now standing up to that and saying, well, you know, the U.S. is not trying to settle this conflict in Syria that's having vast implications on a broader regional power struggle. I'm going to settle it my way and uh, and that will give me a foothold to shape the balance of power in the rest of the region over the long term. Um, it's a pretty interesting prospect of something that I think many of us haven't thought about in 20 years. Um, but I guess <laughs> part of the question is whether it's appropriate to even think about the Syrian conflict that way. Mm. Do these great power politics matter anymore? And partly I'm thinking about this because I just got back from China, which is a rising power thinking about its role in the world, including in the Middle East. Um, but, you know, President Obama doesn't seem to think that great power politics matters not anymore. A
1: superpower chessboard.
0: And he said about Syria that it is not a superpower chessboard contest, and he doesn't feel like he's competing with the Russians. So what do you think, guys? Does this matter? <laughs> well, I, I- want to know what
2: you think. Does should he look at syria and see a superpower chessboard and feel competitive with the russians or is that just you know you know presidential kind of chess thumping stuff um, you know or or is that the right way to think about it you know sort of great game politics
0: you know i don't know I don't know that the United States or President Obama needs to buy into great game politics to recognize that for Russia, this is about influence. Um, even if Obama doesn't define the American role in the Syrian crisis in those terms, Putin clearly does. He's looking to ensure that he has a seat at the table and that when negotiations happen over the end of this conflict, that the view he favors, which is that you need a strong man to push back against Vacuums and anarchy areas, as he put it, and to fight terrorism, that that's the right way to go. And all this democracy stuff is is naive and foolhardy and disorderly and unpredictable and dangerous. Um, that's his view. That's his view everywhere in the world. And he has a chance to enforce that in concrete terms over American preferences because the U.S. isn't standing up for its preferences. I don't know that that's about sort of geopolitics and the global balance of power, but it is about um, what norms are going to govern the international system.
1: Uh, What I've been sort of impressed by is I lean more towards the, yes, you should take them seriously as a superpower for no other reason. They have nuclear weapons and regional territorial ambitions and, you know, (laughs) <laughs> I'm perfectly fine with the Cold War chessboard analogy, and maybe it's just because it's what I grew up with and I understand it. But <clears throat> what's impressed me is that the administration's response to this and intelligence officials, too, is almost meant to try and sort of dismiss what he's doing as childish or silly or naive, and really taking this more like, you know, high-minded, we're not going to get involved, but, you know, uh, we'll point out all the places where, uh, he seems to be getting into a quagmire. He's getting it over his head. He doesn't know what he's doing. It feels more like schoolyard taunting to me than it does somebody sort of affirmatively putting forward, you know, a kind of counter vision.
0: schoolyard taunting or Obama Obama's schoolyard. Ah, Putin. so Putin is thumping his chest and Obama's. It's taunting. sort of like you're know, like
1: I'm not gonna, I'm gonna ignore you. I'm gonna let the child throw his tantrum, mm-hmm. and it, that 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 doesn't seem to me like. The smart strategy in the long run. So,
2: what is the right strategy, other than the one we're going to get to in the third segment?
1: Well, if I knew that, I'd run for president.
2: No, you wouldn't.
1: <laughs> I would be a great
2: president. <laughs> you would be a great president, but but you wouldn't run. You'd be. A, no. uh, so what, what? I mean, what should the strategy toward Putin be? Aggressive confrontation? No,
1: I don't think so. But I think it lies somewhere between, you know, the sort of, you know, crossing your arms, I'm not paying attention to you, seeming dismissal and outright aggression. Um, yeah. You know, and look, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe Obama is absolutely right that just let him get deeper and deeper, Putin deeper and deeper into this, and eventually he will be eaten in the quicksands of Syria, and I'll have been right. But it feels a little bit like the no-drama Obama, don't-do-stupid-shit doctrine is kind of putting us in the position of just not saying much of anything. And that doesn't feel right. This is the
2: let-other-people-do-stupid-shit doctrine.
0: Yeah, I guess so. But I think either of the alternatives you pose, you know, either do nothing or push back hard, those are both about reacting to Putin's behavior, and neither of them are about standing up for American interests. And I think the underlying problem in American policy, in dealing with Putin more generally, but in the Syrian crisis in particular, is that there isn't a clear articulation of what American interests are at stake here and in what way. And, you know, it's not a question of standing up to Putin for the sake of standing up to Putin because we're in a global power competition and it's zero sum, so if he steps up, that means he's pushing us back. It's more about standing up for your own interests and not allowing others to get in the way of your ability to achieve them. But if you haven't clearly defined your interests or, you know, which is also possible, you've concluded that you don't actually have any major interests in mm-hmm. Syria, then maybe you do nothing.
1: Okay. Speaking of doing nothing, why don't we hear from our next non-sponsor?
2: Our next non-sponsor this week is Squarespace.com. If you need a big, beautiful website website, uh write it yourself. Um or hire somebody to do it. Um Seriously. because you,
0: know, you can like use the websites well, where you have to really learn your way around. I don't like oh, them yeah. to be easy to navigate. Yeah. And I, I want to feel like an expert. And you I remember
1: know. Angel Fire, remember that? Thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I really I used, you, you
0: know, yeah. getting on
2: the wall is a WordPress website and I really WordPress is really inexpensive. It's it's really good. And so I highly recommend that you not pay the you know ten bucks twelve bucks a month yeah. to Squarespace because they're not sponsoring us. So I've got no reason to recommend them. And WordPress really does us just fine. So I say go with WordPress and go with the free version of WordPress <laughs> if there you need you it. Or, or,
1: or, 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 or don't spend any oh. money. It's um. Squarespace creates easy to use elegant well functioning websites. At the end of the day, people go on the internet for words. Just put text on the screen. Yeah, just put text yeah, on the screen. There it's you go. Fine. And you know, you don't You don't need spaces and like and pictures, pictures yeah. graphical yeah. interfaces. No. People and, like to read you know, like that yeah. really small
0: type, big blocks right. of yes. text.
1: Also,
2: you can learn HTML yourself. Oh, it's, it's not so very easy. hard. I, I I code in HTML all the time. You know, all these probably sites five that take hours. E- a night, the easy drag and drop months, tools. And you'll
1: probably get there. Right. Yeah.
2: It's just not you don't need yeah. the drag and drop yeah. tools. Just write the damn code yourself. Right.
1: There you yeah. go. You don't need our non sponsor Squareface Whatever. Pear Squace. Pearsquace. Pearsquace. Next com. week
2: our non sponsors uh will be uh I don't know. We'll figure it out.
0: <laughs> we'll see who doesn't sponsor <laughs> We'll see who doesn't us sponsor us. Now and then. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right, Ben, let's move on to uh, your wordplay. Um, so what is it with you in Vladimir Putin? What so, is it, Ben? It's
0: all about muscle flexing. No, I have not
2: flexed my muscles in public, although Putin has. I'm just kind of put off by his hypermasculine masculine displays. Okay. I, um,
0: so what uh, have you done about this? Well, I've challenged him to a fight. Um, and That's a great way to discourage hyper <laughs> don't you think?
1: You can do it, but Obama can't.
2: Right. So I I started tweeting that I wanted Putin to fight me, because um, he has all this stuff about you know how what a great judo practitioner he is, and so I started tweeting at people that he was a phony martial artist and he should if he wanted to show that he wasn't he should agree to fight me. Why
0: do you say he's a phony?
2: Because I've watched his videos and. They're all, like, it looks really faked. It looks like it's a whole lot of people taking falls for him, which is... Do you
0: think it's all a big stunt just to make him look tough? Yeah,
2: just like I don't really think he wrestled with a bear that wasn't, you know...
1: A trained bear, tra- or something, or you know. Truck. And <laughs> I don't think when he
2: scores, a drugged, eight trained eight or nine goals against, you know, NHL hockey players, it was because they were really trying to stop him.
1: Because their families were like in a cell someplace. Right. I don't. I dead. just
2: don't yeah. believe that. So my line to Putin is, I will meet you anytime, any place that you don't have the authority to have me arrested. And I've been mortified, and that you're not concerned about polonium-tipped umbrellas. Um, I'll I'll run that risk. It's it's not the polonium-tipped umbrellas. It's it it was it was polonium in food, I think. Ah, and the, yes. the, it was uh, ricin-tipped umbrellas. There you go. Um, I'll run that risk. But I'm what I'm been disappointed by is I have not gotten a response from the Kremlin. Um and, um you know, this I I've had some media about it and a lot of high profile support um from, you know, major figures in in US foreign policy, Anne Marie Slaughter, um, you know she supported the same she idea? supported the idea that Putin should either fight that. me or face disgrace as a wuss.
0: Um <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, he's really working hard to discourage hypermasculinity. For, for,
2: former ambassador to Russia, Mike McFall, has supported this campaign. Um, as has Gary Kasparov. Um, and guys, he knows
0: a thing or two about tough competition. Yes, Gary in fact, Kasparov. Gary, Ka-
2: Gary Kasparov's tweet at me said, good luck, but, but remember that Putin's idea of a fair fight is to have you beaten up by goons and then have you arrested and charged with assault, which is, of course, why I want to do the fight in somewhere where he doesn't have... Where, I, if you could
1: pick a venue... Like, would it be like, what, well, like like a thriller in Manila? Would you well, kind of
2: I've asked uh, Tumas Ilves, the <laughs> president of Estonia, to host the fight. Oh,
1: well, that's a good um, idea.
2: I thought Ilves, you know, who's a, a great Twitter presence, by the way, you should all follow President Ilves, um, would be, Estonia would be the perfect place. Um, the Baltics, sure. I've been surprised that he has not responded yet but I'm waiting on that. He might
0: have one or two matters of
2: state. Yeah, well, other, what could be more important than this? You
0: must
1: have, like, a lot of interns
0: running that Twitter account. Or
2: yeah, um, and then, um, so I, I'd be fine with any of the Eastern European states, but really I'm fine with, you know, Belarus. I mean, anywhere really? that, that, that he does not have the power to have me arrested, I will fight him.
1: Yeah. Can't we go someplace glamorous? Because we're obviously going to have to do a live show. I'll do yeah. Las Vegas. I mean How about Miami? Oh, I like it. Sure, in the winter? I offered to come to New York for the general... a lot of Russians in Miami.
2: I offered to come to New York for the General Assembly session, but no.
1: I think that you're actually... You are closer to President Obama uh, uh, in his dealing with Putin than, than you may appreciate.
0: Yeah, because I think...
1: Mm-hmm. emasculating, you know...
0: Ignoring the schoolyard ignoring. bully, but I mean, there really is. A, oh, well,
1: he's the schoolyard bully this time. Though.
2: There really is a serious side to this, though. I mean, do you think that there that it is unconnected that a guy who presents himself the way Putin does behaves the way Putin behaves? You know, this is a guy who appears shirtless, um, you know, showing off his muscles, and then behaves exactly like the guy in high school who would show off his packs right he um he wrestles with a wrestles with a bear and then you know attacks his neighbors right he uh does these horrible sort of displays of turbo male crap and guess what he's not so good to lgbt folks in in russia right and i think these things are all sort of connected um and so part of the point is you know Actually, just to kind of point out that there's a relationship there, and that one way to respond to it is just, you know, actually to deflate the balloon a little bit.
1: Well, I hope he responds to you, and uh, that we can be doing a live cast someplace that's not Moscow. Not Moscow.
0: To Rumble in Reykjavik. the Reykjavik
1: the rumble ooh, the rumble in Reykjavik what did you say
0: the rumble in Reykjavik i like okay. it let's do it that's good
1: it, this is getting very cold War. or like back to Reykjavik back yeah. to Reykjavik settle it again it's going to be just like it's going to be just like rocky IV. And it was, it was <laughs>
2: 1976 isn't Reykjavik where uh, where Karpov and Bobby Fischer were supposed to meet oh mm, that's
1: right i think i think that's yeah. right
0: all right. And then we had the uh, we also had the uh, Reagan-Gorbachev arms control talks sure. in Reykjavik. Yeah, that's
1: the one I was thinking of. Yeah. All right. It's 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 got good juju. Uh, good juju. Yeah, and yeah. It's,
2: and it's, you know, about equidistant from.
1: Oh sure. Yeah. All right, we can handle that. All right. Uh, let's move on to object lessons so, tomorrow. Well, as you, you've, you've come far and wide with this object.
0: I have, as you both know, I just got back from a week in China where I was lecturing to China. Students at Peking Trump University. Yes, um, China. The the one that uh, Sarah Palin could not see with her naked eyes for her problem. home in Alaska. A little too far away. But um but while I was there, I got to do a little bit of national security uh, uh, egghead sightseeing because I got to see um, one of the wonders of the ancient world. One of the only. Uh, objects on Earth that can be easily identified from space, a defensive wall of historic uh-huh. proportions, the Great Wall of China. Um, I learned some things about the Great Wall. For example, it's not a single continuous wall. Oh, really? It's a bunch of walls that have breaks between them. Are the
1: breaks like where there are just hills that are too tall to scale? Or?
0: Well, and, and also I gather that it was a way of channeling um, invading forces. But uh, but partly because it wasn't continuous and partly because it wasn't maintained continuously, it never actually worked that well as a defensive wall if the idea is to keep people out. Um, that said, the restored parts of the wall, the ones that are close to Beijing that the tour buses can go to, are pretty darn impressive. Ooh, so wow. yeah. here's my great wall photo. A very nice great wall photo. Which I will be sharing on the website for all of you to see and... Uh, Boy, it really, I mean, it, it really was breathtaking scenery. The wall is a breathtaking achievement of human engineering and endeavor, and there are all kinds of, um, horrific rumors about the skeletons of, of workers from the 14th century, um, buried in the foundations of this wall. Uh, probably a million people worked on it over the Ugh. course of its history. So it really was, uh, a once in a lifetime experience. Can I tell you
1: my favorite Great Wall story real quick? Oh, yeah. Which is, this is, This was what told me by Joe. And so Joe was studying in Beijing when he was in college. And, um, you know, they have the do's and don'ts on the wall, and they have some very poor English translations. So what his two favorites were, one was, um, no making of the bowls on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> so don't poop on the wall. Yeah. And the other was, no preaching feudalism or superstitious beliefs. Wow. <laughs> Which I really, like, as far as, like, dude, those are my favorite do's and don'ts. Like, I bet he, that's going to be a rule in my house What exactly house well. is
0: wrong with preaching feudalism? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, apparently it's a real problem on the wall, but they wow. don't want
1: any of it. And, you know, and don't make your bowls either. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, I'll do my object real quick. And this is actually just a uh, uh, something I just discovered, actually, this week. This is a new book. Um which <clears throat> which was published in England by a journalist over there for the BBC named Gordon Carrera called Intercept. Not the Intercept is in the publication, but Intercept, The Secret History of Computers and Spies. Uh, and I've been going over some excerpts of it and it's just really fun, fascinating reading. It's kind of a basically a history of technology in national security and espionage going back, you know, to World War Two and sort of looking at uh Uh, these, kind of a series of chapters looking at these various portions of history. And my, the thing that really caught my eye is that he actually has a section where he goes into a building in England that's known as the cell, uh, which is where British security, uh, reviews and dissects and, and inspects all technology equipment from Huawei, the big Chinese telecommunications manufacturer before it's allowed to be installed in the UK. Wow. And so it has to go through, like, this scrubbing process. And he describes going into this kind of skiff like facility where the deeper you go into it, um, the more security layers there are, until you get to, like, a room where they're, like, literally pulling apart the computers and weighing them to make sure that they don't weigh too much, which would indicate that maybe a device had been planted in them. And they're testing all the new versions. And the last sort of layer of this kind of, uh, um, Sanctum, if you like, <clears throat> is a cage in which there's just a single computer terminal that can only accept data and won't transmit it out, and it's the Huawei source code wow. that's on the machine. So if you're want, if you Huawei, the world's biggest telecom provider, and you want to do business in the U.K., that's all right, but you've got to go through this quarantine <laughs> inspection service first.
2: And is this a new book?
1: It is new. It came out apparently last year. I haven't heard a lot about it, um, and I, and I confess I don't know... A ton about his other work, but he has written a number of other uh, books on national security topics, Gordon Carrera. Uh, and yeah, this excerpt that I checked out was terrific. So you can get it on Amazon. I think you have to get the UK Kindle version, but you can order it uh, uh, through other sellers and hard copy.
2: You should uh,
1: review it for lawfare. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I want to find some
0: time. Sounds fascinating. That's well, from
1: cool. the sublime to the ridiculous.
2: My object lesson is my goodbye present from one Wells Bennett, who, as you know, was my object lesson last week and who has departed lawfare, but uh, we can't tell he's you. He's now
0: an object lesson. We, we, we cannot tell you where he's
2: gone. Um, as a goodbye present, uh, Wells gave me uh, a mock award, which a picture of which I immediately tweeted and the funny thing about it was that uh, lots of people on Twitter seemed to take it seriously, <laughs> although they couldn't figure out quite what it was. So the award <laughs> reads, in recognition of his superior efforts in undermining civil liberties and with the utmost gratitude for services rendered, the National Security Establishment proudly presents its 2015 handmaiden of power award to (laughs) benjamin wittes editor-in-chief of lawfare thanks for towing the company line (laughs) so here's the hilarious thing i'll put an image of the award up on our show page
0: handmaiden of power The handmaiden
2: of power award but here's the hilarious go in your bio the the hilarious thing about this Um, some people on twitter Seem to think it was a real award from the national security establishment, well, as because though, of
0: course you would get an award like that. Then. Right, that and of course there is sense. an establishment, and then some, some people,
2: some <laughs> people on Twitter, a larger group, seem to think it was a mock award presented by, you know, my political foes, like, you know, like the ACLU or something, had given me... They didn't me,
0: understand it was given in love. They would still
1: be funny, right,
2: would, by right. the way. <laughs> exactly, by the way. And, and you know, would
0: go and accept it from the ACLU in good sure, humor. I demo bet. to
2: the ACLU, uh, that's actually not a bad idea, presenting mock awards. I'm not nominating myself, but, um, um, you know, that would be pretty funny, too. Um, but nobody seemed to get that it was uh, something in jest with me as part of the jest. So I'm posting it in the spirit in which it was actually meant uh, and um, enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> That's a beautiful
0: award. That's what a, a tribute, night. Ben. Yeah, I like it. They really
1: like it. Like it. <laughs> God, I want one now. Uh, we should all strive for greatness. Uh, well that brings us to the end of the show this week. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our other show pages at spaghetti on the dot com. While you're there, you will not find any offers or deals from Squarepace Space or Stamps dot com. Maybe from Pearpace or Or, <laughs> or, or CampStop camps. camps. um, Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Whom you should patronize. Definitely.
1: As we do. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL security
2: are we brought to you this week by the long line at the post office
1: yeah Yeah. we are brought to you this week by the long line at the post office and everyone who's sitting in that long line listening to this podcast right you're going to be able to listen to a full podcast if you don't buy from stamps.com because that's how time you'll spend
0: in line at the post office There you now, go. Now you're
2: sounding like someone who's actually endorsing stamps.com no, which I'm no, saying
0: we are not it, doing it, here no, we, we're enriching people's lives giving them a chance to listen to the, lo- to the podcast and stand in line exactly. at you the same it. time we're there with
1: you in line yes um, if, if you download our podcast on any of your favorite uh, podcasting apps be sure to please leave us a five star rating and a comment we'd really appreciate it
0: five stars
1: right uh, the podcast is edited by Jen Powell. Our music is performed this week by Putin as a Pussy Riot.
0: <laughs> Very Nice good. one. Did you like that
1: one? That was a good one. Uh, no, of course, our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. You know this. Who I don't think is fighting Vladimir Putin anytime in the near future. Although I would whoop.
0: Uh, I would, I so would
2: totally would. want to see. There is a great. And she
0: plays piano far better. Far than better than he? Putin. There
2: is a great video of of Sophia boxing um, in in Hong Kong, uh, and I would not want to be Putin on the other end of that. No,
1: she could also totally take him down in a head to head piano match. Yeah, Definitely. He can't play piano. That's his next thing. He's going to try and pass himself off as right. a concert pianist. It's not going to work, concert pianist, maybe <laughs> <laughs> just say that. no I didn't say <laughs> any of that <laughs> on behalf of my friends Ben Wittis and Tamar Coffin Wittis, I'm Shane Harris we'll see you next week thanks for listening
0: hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince.